My very first bow hunt happened at the age of 17. My dad bought me a Browning Cobra compound bow at a yard sale. And my lifelong good friend, his name is Storm Ushery. He also works within the department. He got me set up, and we went on our first archery elk hunt that year. It was a September rut hunt, and it was a dream that you could only imagine. The bulls were bugling. The rut was in full swing, and I was hooked. Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Well, believe it or not, it is now September, which means bow seasons are in full swing across the state. And so I wanted to talk today about bow hunting basics, mainly for folks that maybe are thinking about getting into bow hunting, and then dive more specifically into hunting tactics that work well here in New Mexico. So to help us with that today, we have Larry Garcia, who is one of the public information specialists within Game and Fish's Information Center. And so he answers all kinds of customer questions like basic bow hunter questions on a daily basis. So Larry, thanks for joining us today. Hey, good morning, James. Thanks for having me. Uh, kind of a new little venture that I'm kind of excited and nervous to do, but uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it should be a good time. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you originally from here in New Mexico? Yeah, I, I, I am. I was born in a little community up right below Chama called Tierra Maria. And when I was young, my dad moved us to Gallup. And uh, I, I pretty much grew up in the community of Gallup. And then in high school, we ended up moving to Nevada. Uh, I was there for a number of years and back to New Mexico. So uh, except for a few years, I am a lifelong New Mexico resident. Nice. Nice. And has your family been here for several generations? Yeah, absolutely. My I come from a third generation cattle rancher out of northern New Mexico. My wife, her family is uh, actually third generation from Clayton, New Mexico. We have four daughters. Three of them are married. And my son-in-laws, I call my sons, they all hunt and fish. And then I have an 11-year-old daughter. And and I have all my kids right here in in uh, Rio Rancho with me, so it's it's pretty awesome. Nice, nice. Well, how about your career? What were you doing prior to working for Game and Fish, and what made you interested in coming to work for the department? Well, I grew up hunting, grew up fishing, so I always had that desire to either be hunting something or catching something. In 2005, I ended up making the jump over to. Uh, New Mexico State Government. I worked with human services for about 11 years, a little over 11 years in the finance divisions. And I've been with New Mexico Department of Game and Fish for six years now. This is a dream job. I always wanted to be here. And now that I'm here, man, I'm just so blessed to be a part of this uh, great department, probably the greatest department anybody like a person like me could imagine being in. But um, yeah. That's awesome. What was So tell us a little bit about what you do for Game and Fish, and what your job in the Information Center entails. Well, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the division that we're the first point of contact for the general public uh, nationwide. The 888 number that's throughout our uh, website as well as our uh, rules and information booklets, th that number comes directly to our office and the team that I work with. We pick up those lines and we... Uh, we either get people answered, get the questions answered, or we get them directed in the 
right direction. We pick up phone calls for just a plethora of questions and individuals from hunting, hunting questions, fishing questions, camping questions, uh, anything you can think of, private landowners, E+, which is the elk program, hunter education. You name it, you, if you can think of it, we're, we have to have some knowledge of it. Uh, we have to have the ability to get the customers over to the right people so they get the proper information. And uh, we have to do it with good customer service. You know, we still have to have that good attitude because the public is without the public, without our customers, we don't exist. So, um, yeah, just a little bit about that. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like you have to have a knowledge of basically everything going on in the department, it, like you said, at least enough to know where to point a person. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really it, James. Uh, and the nice thing about the Department of Game and Fish is all of the divisions, they're, they're all really good about working with us. They, they know that they know the positions we're in and they're, you know, wildlife management division, the fisheries division, law enforcement, uh, administrative services. All of the people that we reach out to, they are generally really good about uh, communicating with us and, and helping us along the way. That way we can always get people taken care of. For sure. For sure. Well, let's go ahead and dive a little bit into bow hunting. So how long have you been bow hunting and when did you first become interested in the sport and who was the person who kind of helped you the most when you were first starting out in it? So uh, I'm 48 years old now. And my very first bow hunt happened at the age of 17. And the first, the person that was most influential is by far my dad. Obviously, I, I kind of touched on it. He brought me up in it. He took me on my first hunt when I was five years old. As far as um, archery hunting goes, my dad bought me a Browning Cobra compound bow at a yard sale. I think he paid like 25 bucks for it back then. And... uh the next person I, I do have to mention that was very influential in my in my bow hunting love is uh, my lifelong good friend. His name is Storm Ushery. He also works within the department. When I was uh, 17, I got this bow and I, I gave it to Storm to help me out. He got me set up and we went on our first archery elk hunt that year. It was a September rut hunt in uh, Unit 10. And it was a dream you could only imagine. The bulls were bugling. The rut was in full swing, and uh, I was hooked. Nice. Nice. Well, well, what all species have you hunted with a bow, and is there anything that's kind of on your bucket list for bow hunting? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. So, um, like I said, I mentioned I've, I've hunted elk numerous, numerous years. So elk is probably my number one favorite thing to hunt with archery. I've successfully hunted elk with archery. It took me five years to get my first animal. And uh, on my fifth year, I was successful in getting my first elk. It was a cow elk. I've also hunted antelope, spot and stock. And uh, that has been an absolute challenge, a blast. I've also successfully hunted whitetail. Bucket list, I would say there's two animals that absolutely uh, are always on my mind anytime I think about if if my luck was to to be cashed in right here in New Mexico, it would definitely be Rocky Mountain bighorn. I daydream of pursuing bighorn sheep on in the gorge. I think the other animal would be ibex. That's a tall order. I guess we'll touch on later on. But 
yeah, bucket list is definitely Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep and Ibex. Nice. Nice. Well, it sounds like you've been doing this a long time. You've got a lot of experience with it. So let's say that that a friend comes up to you and they say, hey, hey, I really want to get into bow hunting. So let, let's talk about kind of what Storm did for you, some of that basic equipment that they would need to be set up and then any advice that you would give them as they start the sport. Let's start with bows. So what type of a bow would you recommend for a beginner hunter to get? Well, you know, right now I, I currently shoot a compound bow. That would be the first thing I would tell an individual is, this is what I shoot. Uh, this is why I shoot it. And then they would have to make a decision if that's going to fit them. Now, I, I've actually helped friends along the way and get into archery shooting and archery hunting. And it's all been through compound bows. I I actually, my very first bow was a recurve bow. My first two bows were little recurve bows, but they were youth bows. And the simplicity of it is elementary. It's so easy to use. And for me, the fun level was there. As I got a little bit older, right around that 16, 17 year age, where I realized I was probably going to have a lot of difficulty arrowing a deer or elk with my recurve. My desire for compound bows started to take place, and uh, that's what happened was I ended up going into the archery with the very elementary used archery equipment. In today's world, archery equipment is it is very, very expensive. It can be, but uh, there's also ways that a person can go about it. You can find good, used, well-taken-care-of equipment. And there's still new equipment, and there's still bow manufacturers and companies that are producing equipment for individuals that just, you know, may not want to invest a whole, whole lot of money without knowing if that's going to be for them. So I think if I were to sit down with somebody brand new right now, I would simply share with that individual, that person, why I, I choose compound bows. Our department actually has a little bit of a archery education division and the nice thing about it that is we set up different events throughout the year, and we offer a lot of these archery educational-type programs where a person can show up and have an opportunity to experience shooting a bow. And that's something that I think that's great with the department, that it helps grow our sport of archery shooting and archery hunting. My, my daughter is actually, my 11-year-old daughter is actually an avid archery shooter, and we got her what's called a, it's a genesis it's a it's a very elementary easy to pull compound bow this bow has actually helped me i've been able to show even adults the ability to shoot this bow the simplicity of it and generally persons just get hooked they really enjoy shooting it or they just don't it's just not for them now is that a bow that she could hunt with or is it more of a a learning tool and not necessarily able to take big game animals it's absolutely a learning tool. This bow was designed for persons that were starting, they're, they're starting to get their feet wet and in the sport of archery. Yeah, this Genesis bow is the same bow. It's the required bow by the NASP, and that's National Archery and Schools Program. That's one of the shooting programs in the state of New Mexico that kids from all ages all the way up to high school shoot, I believe. It's also one of the bows that numerous agencies, numerous bow shops use just to introduce people. It is very easy to pull for youngsters all the way up to adults. 
it's just it's a great little learning bow and it's definitely something that I would recommend for for people to at least give a try that way you get an idea of what you know what it's like to draw a bow what it's like to release a bow you get you get the basics there's a lot of safety in it too there's so much safety in using this little genesis bow okay so it sounds like things like the genesis bow would be more like you said learning the fundamentals learning safety target shooting but then your recommendation for a for a beginning hunting bow would be a more powerful compound bow. And let's talk a little bit about that, right? So you talked about that the Genesis bow is a compound bow that's easy to pull back and your hunting bows are compound bows. So what what exactly is providing the power there? What exactly is a compound bow doing? And let's talk about draw weights and things like that. Oh, that, yeah, that's that's actually a really good question there, James. Uh, compound bows, they're pretty intricate pieces of equipment, if you will. They have the riser, which is the limbs and the handle, which you would hold on to the bow. And then at the top of the limbs on compound bows, you'll see little round circles, little round wheels. Some people call them wheels. Some people call them cams. And what happens is there's it's a string system that goes up and down throughout the wheels and the cams. And as you draw the bow, as you knock the arrow onto the bowstring, as you draw it back, the limbs will start to kind of break over a little bit. And those wheels allow that string to be pulled. At the release of the arrow, those limbs will snap the string back. And those wheels, they're really important in the function of the bow. And generally, those cams are where you develop the power and the speed, uh, the torque of the, the bow. With compound bows, you do get a lot more speed. And what I mean by speed is the arrow travel in the air. Uh, with a recurve or a long bow, when you release, when you release, when you draw those bows and you release them, the arrows fly through the air quite a bit slower than with a compound bow. It doesn't mean that they're less effective by any means. It just means that they're a bit slower and the shooting distance, the range, there's a little bit less. Actually, there's quite a bit of less range within a recurve and a long bow versus a compound bow. That's one of the reasons I choose to hunt with a compound bow. They do give me a little a bit more distance it's not so much the speed factor that's one of the learning curves that i went through you know i've heard people say speed kills but uh that's not generally true in the world of archery it's about shot placement and making good ethical shots well then along those lines of picking a bow so we're we're going to go and we're going to get a compound bow can any compound bow work or is it tailored specifically to the person as far as how much you can pull back and the length of your draw and things like that? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. When we when we go to choose a bow, first thing I would recommend to anybody that's looking at getting into archery is to find a really good, reputable bow shop. And then when you get to the bow shop, you obviously want to be absolutely honest with the person that you're you're dealing with. At that point, what's going to happen is the person's going to be matched up with the bow that's going to fit their body size, that's going to fit their strength size, and measurement comes in into play. Not all bows are created equal. We're, on, we're not all the same. You and I, we're both, we're both men, but we both have a little bit different size, different arms, different arm length, different arm strength, shoulder strength, so on and so forth. And so you and I might not shoot the exact same bow. So being completely honest and open, 
That way the person that you're dealing with can get you set up with the proper weight bow, the proper length bow. Something that's hardly ever mentioned is brace height. And brace height is basically the distance between your handle, uh, where you would hold onto the bow, and where the string comes down. A shorter brace height bow is generally the faster bows, six-inch brace height, six-and-a-quarter-inch brace heights. And if you go with a longer brace height, meaning seven-plus inches, you're going to have a more forgiving bow. And what I mean by that is when you have a bow that's more forgiving, sometimes your uh, your shooting form doesn't always have to be perfect. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't strive to always have perfect f- shooting form. I'm saying that the bow allows for you to be a little less perfect. Uh, I shoot a bow that has a seven and a half inch brace height. At one time I shot a bow that had a six and a quarter inch brace height. The bow was extremely, extremely fast would just absolutely spit arrows for whatever reason. If I had a bad release, if I didn't hold my position and follow through just the slightest movement can mean the distance from two to three inches to a foot, especially the further the arrow has to travel. For if you don't have a solid shooting form and you have a bad release and you're shooting, you know, you're shooting the big game animals without having that really, really great form, you can actually make a really bad shot. And as an archery hunter, that's the, that's the one thing we never want to do. And that's one of the reasons I shoot a, a bigger brace height bow is because I've recognized I'm, I'm not going to be the world's greatest shooter, but when I do shoot, I need to put in the time and effort to get good with the equipment I have. But that doesn't mean the shorter brace height super speed bows aren't good. For those individuals that want to do that, you just, you really need to put in the time and effort nonstop shooting year round, whether you draw a hunt or not. You always want to be shooting. Uh, your body, your body, it's about muscle memory and that way it's second nature. You know, it's, you put the bow in your hands and your, your mind, it's just automatically just boom. It's, it's a quick function. It's automatic and, your body goes into to mode as to how you're going to shoot, draw, shoot, follow through. Well, since we're on that subject, let's go ahead and dive into that just a little bit more. So when you're talking about form, what constitutes that? Are there some basics that people need to be aware of? For, for all shooters, not just new shooters, form is always top priority. Once you have a, a great shooting bow, and the bow is tuned, the bow is going to do its job. So as archers, we need to put in our time behind the bow. That way that bow performs up to the very best of its ability because we're, we're working so hard on our form, not just for beginner shooters, but for veteran shooters. Ideally, you want to shoot when it's there's calm wind, no wind. That way you can find out and make certain that your bow is tuned and your arrows are flying perfect. You want to take your time. You want to hold on to your handle. Draw. You always want to have a smooth draw. I've seen where there's a lot of guys, and they max their bows out. And I'll watch them shoot. I'll watch them draw their bow, and you'll see them twist their bodies up, and they just kind of – you'll see them with their the hand that they're holding onto the bow. They reach for the sky, and then they draw back. And as soon as they touch the release, you see that arrow just smoking out of there. And that's all good and well when you're on the archery range and shooting 3D targets and stuff. But when you're archery hunting, you you have to have so many things work in your favor that less movement is so much more beneficial. And you're not going to be able to move all that way around to lift your bow and 
rear back and draw that big high 70s pound bow. So form is absolutely critical when you're out target shooting. You really, really, really want to work on this all the time, each and every shot. That way, when it comes time to go onto the 3D range and then eventually into the hunting field, you want to shoot, 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 and perfect your shooting stance, your shooting form, that when you finally do get that opportunity to draw your bow on a big game animal, that it's just second nature. You've done it so many times. Your body has been there. Your muscle memory is so in tune that when you get that opportunity, the bow draw happens very smooth, second nature. You're able to get on target and hopefully thread the needle and make that ethical shot. Well, in some of that, you talked about, especially early on, about different things that you had on your bow. So you talked about using a release. You talked about using sights. So what are some other, I guess, accessories, for lack of a better term, do you recommend people have on their bows, like stabilizers and other equipment that they need? So I, I personally shoot stabilizers on my compound bows. There are some archers that do not. The reason I shoot a stabilizer is these bows have so much torque at the arrow release. There's so much kinetic energy that's built up that that bow, that piece of equipment, is sending that arrow, the shaft, at such high takeoff speeds that the bow, there's a lot of tension and torque that that piece of equipment is just getting smacked. I mean, if you will think about it, you're drawing all this weight back. And on the release, it's sending this weighted arrow down. But sooner or later, that arrow comes off and that string has to come to a complete stop. Well, you're going to, if, if you will, and you can imagine that, you know that there's going to be some sort of shock through the whole bow. Stabilizers help reduce that shock. And if you have something helping your handhold as you're releasing this arrow, absorb some of that shock that means your hand that you're holding onto the bow with stays steadier it basically means you're having a more accurate shot there again as archery hunters that's exactly what we're always striving for what we're always looking for is to have that smooth release these stabilizers on these compound bows they just help us don't get caught up in having to buy what all the magazines have or so on and so forth Get the best stabilizer that you can afford that will perform well on your bow. And uh, I've gone as far as shooting my bow many times without a stabilizer and then adding it. And that's what I would tell new archers. Shoot your bow without a stabilizer and then put the stabilizer on. And you make that decision. If you shoot it enough times, you shoot a bow 10 times without a stabilizer. And then you put the stabilizer on and shoot 10 times. I'm pretty certain you're going to have a better target shooting as well as you're going to recognize the vibration through your hand is a lot less when you have that stabilizer added on your bow. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about the bow itself, but what about picking the right arrows for our new bow? What advice would you give there? So that's where we're going to, there again, we're going to refer to the experts at the bow shops. Uh, what happens is an individual that we find out how many pounds of draw weight you're pulling. A measurement will be done on the archer to find out what their draw length will be. And with that draw length, 
and then the poundage of the bow that they are pulling, an arrow weight. There's a whole bunch of different graphs for different arrow manufacturers. Then what happens is we will put those two numbers in, and we come out with a shaft weight, and that's just the weight of the arrow. And for hunting, then we have to also consider in the weight of the broadhead that we're going to be shooting. Uh, field points come in the same way as hunting broadheads. And what happens is once you add the tip, whether it be a field point or a hunting broadhead, the total weight of the shaft goes into play. And it's that's when you start to recognize your arrow speeds. That's where you start to tune in your arrows to your to your bow. Looking at the fletching, what is that providing for for that shot? Uh, the arrow fletching is basically the rudder for the arrow in the air. The fletching basically stabilizes the arrow as its flight from the bow to the target. There was a time that with bigger broadheads, the bigger fletching helped stabilize these broadheads in flight. In today's market, they make such amazing broadheads that you no longer have to shoot the great big fletching. You can go ahead and move down to smaller fletching. For the better part, you'll see arrows with three fletchings on them. I've seen some with four, and that's a personal preference. But it all goes back to the one fundamental thing that they are there for. They stabilize that arrow through the flight. In that, you had talked quite a bit about broadheads, so let's talk about that as well because there's a lot of diversity there. So how do you pick the best broadhead for a hunting bow? Well, in today's market, there's literally, literally hundreds of broadheads to choose from. I started archery back when we used to shoot what was called a Easton XX78 aluminum arrows. They used to call them Lincoln logs, and we used to shoot great big broadheads. I was archery shooting when the transition went from aluminum shafts to carbon arrows to what we have today. With these carbon arrows, the speed of arrows increased we went from shooting 200 feet per second to 250 feet per second to bows that are shooting arrows at nearly 400 feet per second 350 feet per second when you increase the speed of the arrow a lot of these broadheads as they're flying through the air they can change the straight line of flight for these arrows so what you want to do is you want to get a broadhead that is properly fit to the spine that you're shooting then you have to look at the animal that you're shooting also. My very first elk I shot with an open-on impact vortex. It was a two-blade, and it opened up to, I believe, two inches, two and a quarter inches. But throughout that time, I started to do more and more research, and I found that open-on open on impact broadheads might not be the best choice for bigger animals like elk. For antelope and for deer, they work exceptional. They really perform well on those animals, whereas for elk, sometimes not as much. So my preference is fixed broadheads. Find yourself a good three-blade fixed broadhead. Less is more in this new world, meaning you no longer have to shoot the big 125-grain monster blades. You can shoot 100-grain, little bitty 100-grain broadheads. They fly exceptional. That's what we're looking for. That's what, when we when we place that arrow. We're looking for a broadhead that'll hold up as it's traveling through and making good ethical shots. Sure. Sure. Well, 
along those lines, are there any regulations in New Mexico that are specific to bow hunting gear that we need to be aware of so that we're not outfitting with gear that's that's illegal to use? Uh, here in New Mexico, as far as archery equipment, that's definitely a no-go. Is any type of equipment that would put light on a big game animal? Doesn't mean you can't use lighted knocks. By all means, you can use lighted knocks. So, what about crossbows? Can you use a crossbow during a bow hunt in New Mexico? Well, New Mexico has what's called an archery season. We don't have a crossbow season here in New Mexico. So, a person that draws public land archery hunt or a person that purchases a private land archery hunt, those individuals cannot just pick up a crossbow and go to the go to the field, go to the woods, and hunt with the crossbow during the archery season. However, we do allow certain individuals to hunt big game in New Mexico during the archery season with crossbows, but those individuals have to have one of two things. Uh, persons that have qualified for a mobility-impaired certification, meaning that their doctor has signed off that they have a permanent disability, uh, which uh, it's a mobile disability, we allow those individuals that have this certification to hunt with crossbow during the archery season. And uh, one of the newer things which, you know, the department has moved over to is called a reasonable accommodations permit. And what it is is basically, for example, if you, you drew an archery antelope hunt, James, and two months before your your archery hunt came around, you uh, you got bucked off your horse and you busted your shoulders. You went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, James, it's it's in your best benef- best interest not to be drawing your bow. You need to you need to plan on not shooting your bow because it's just not it's not a healthy decision. At that point, with medical uh, documentation you can apply for what's called a reasonable accommodations permit. And what it is is basically it's a permit where your it's documents where your doctor is saying it's not safe for James to draw his bow for these reasons. And basically we'll submit that permit to the director. And once the director gets it, uh, director Sloan will review it. And basically what happens is director Sloan would then authorize you a 30 day special use permit where you'd be eligible to hunt with a crossbow during your archery antelope hunt in this example. It's not a free blanket. I get a hunt with a crossbow for the rest of my days during the archery season. It's basically a permit where the department is working with these archery hunters that have had a hardship come upon them that they're just not able to physically draw their bows. Yeah, so so it sounds like as long as you have one of these permits – it's acceptable, but for the general public, for me just drawing an archery tag, crossbows are not permitted. Now, within that description there, it also states that draw locks are illegal. So what is that? What is that referring to? A uh, draw lock is it's a mechanism. What You attach it to your bow, to regular archery equipment. Um, and I've only seen them on compound bows. I don't know that they would work on a recurve bow. You draw your bow to maximum draw. You go ahead and you knock an arrow, and the individual is able to walk around the forest with their bow always drawn. It's always in a drawn position. 
those are illegal in New Mexico. You're not a, a, a eligible to use those here. And I wouldn't recommend it to your bow anyway. These bows, they are very high quality built, but they're also situational, situationally built, meaning as tough as the material is that they, they produce these bows today, they're still in limitations, meaning you don't want to draw your 70-pound bow and walk around for hours with this bow at full draw. You're putting unnecessary torque on those limbs, on your riser, and you're putting all that torque on your string, which eventually strings always stretch. Bow strings always, always stretch. And as strings stretch, your accuracy changes. So this draw lock thing is, it's not a good piece of equipment. And I'm glad we don't, just my opinion, I'm glad New Mexico doesn't allow the draw locks. That's that's some good information there. So along the lines of regulations and and things like that, I know in some states that bow hunter education is required. Is that required in New Mexico? And then it sounds like you had kind of mentioned that there are some education opportunities. So, So is bow hunter education available in New Mexico? So bow hunter education is available in New Mexico. We have a great hunter education program. Our coordinator, she actually happens to be an avid bow hunter. So uh, bow hunter education is not required for New Mexicans and non-residents to bow hunt here. However, we offer it. And for individuals that, even for people that have experienced, that are experienced hunters, I would simply say, take a look at it and take the class. We as bow hunters never stop learning it's a neat little refresher, and I would recommend it to all people, not just new archers, not just youth. Uh, I would say if you're going to bow hunt, it doesn't take a whole long time to do, and it's a neat little program. I would say definitely check, take a look at our bow hunter education. Uh, as far as hunter education, hunters 17 and under must have uh, certified hunter education. So, Okay. Okay, so bow hunter specific education, not required, but it is offered, but then there are general hunter education requirements yeah, absolutely yeah 17 and under it is required okay okay well we're ready to go hunting now we've got our bow we've got every all of our gear we've met the requirements let's move into some bow hunting preparation now now you're getting ready to leave on a bow hunt later this week right yeah as soon as as soon as my shift is up today I'll actually start loading, uh, loading my gear and I'll be on the mountain tomorrow morning. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's talk about some of the prep work that has gone into that and, and is going into that. So you had talked a lot about form and muscle memory earlier on. So for this hunt specifically that you have, when did you start practicing? Or how how soon before a hunt do you start practicing, and how often? So ideally, what happens is archers that they crave it, meaning a bow hunter eats, drinks, and sleeps bow hunting. For those individuals, they never stop shooting. You could talk to a hundred of them, and a hundred of them are going to tell you, "I shoot all year long." You shoot targets, you shoot three Ds, you shoot all year long. Um, myself, I don't just archery hunt i muzzleloader hunt i rifle hunt i hunt birds with shotgun um and more than anything i'm a family man i have a wife i have kids i have grandkids and um so i don't shoot every single day every single week uh 
once I found out that I did draw this hunt, which I'm pretty excited about, I haven't had this archery tag since 2008, and it's in a just a phenomenal elk unit. Um, I started to prepare my body right then. It's been a number of years since I pursued elk with archery equipment, and from experience, I knew that physically, I have to push my body to be in the very best position I can. I wanted to eat right. I wanted to drink uh, plenty of water. Drinking water two weeks before your elk hunt isn't preparing your body for an elk hunt. You need to be drinking lots of water all the time. It's just a healthy thing to do. Uh, I walk a lot. Uh, lift a little bit of weights. And here in the last probably two months, probably two and a half months, I actually started to walk with one of my backpacks. I started out with 10 pounds on my backpack, and I, I moved up to 25 pounds. And I'm walking four miles a day with 25 pounds in my back. And I know that 25 pounds doesn't seem like a lot, but if you go pick up a 16-ounce bottle of water, that's one pound. Go put 25 of those in your backpack and go walk. I know water weight is pretty heavy, but go do it. Go put 10 water bottles in your backpack, and you'll see a huge difference. Your lower back starts to feel the strain. Your shoulders start to feel the strain. And and doing this, I was also able to see where I needed to adjust my frame pack. That way, I'm optimizing my equipment to fit my body shape and style. So after that, the one thing, and this is what I recommend to all archery hunters, shoot with your backpack. As you move in on elk, a lot of times you're still wearing your backpack. And... It can happen in the blink of an eye. You can hear elk crashing through the forest, what you think is 150, 200 yards away, and seconds later the bull appears with well within your archery distance within shooting lanes. You don't have time to take your backpack off. Sometimes you have to be able to draw that bow and make that shot with your backpack. When we practice our archery shooting, like I said earlier, we like to practice in ideal situations. No wind, flat ground, so on and so forth. That's to make sure that our bow, that our equipment is performing at the very best optimum performance that there is. Once we have our bows tuned, you want to get outside of your comfort zone. You don't want to just shoot on level ground. You don't want to just shoot on calm days. You need to shoot in wind. You need to shoot in breeze. You need to shoot at all different distances. Um, I use a rangefinder. I recommend it to everybody. If you can... The two things that I say outside of your archery equipment that you definitely are must-haves are good, good pair of binoculars. Get the most, the best quality binocular that you can afford. And the other thing I tell new archers is if you can, get a rangefinder. The rangefinder takes out the guesswork. But in learning to use a rangefinder, one of the nice things about it is you get to find out if your eyeballs are telling you that that target is 28 yards away and you shoot it with a rangefinder, and you find out that it's 35 yards away. Seven yards doesn't seem like that much of a difference, but it is. So the two things outside of great archery tackle that I recommend to everybody to get is a good pair of binoculars and get the very best rangefinder you can afford. And when it comes time for preparation, get your body in the best physical condition that you can. You're only going to help yourself. And then shoot your bow with your equipment on. Shoot your bow with your frame pack. Shoot your bow with your pack weighted down. 
shoot at different distances, shoot uphill, shoot downhill, shoot in the wind, shoot in the breeze. Good advice. So along those lines, let's move into tactics themselves. So you're obviously practicing different than you maybe you would on a rifle hunt, right? So how, how would you approach a bow hunt differently than you do a rifle hunt? Are the areas that you're hunting, are you looking for different things? Are you looking for different terrain and cover types? And you had mentioned wind. Is wind more of an important factor now than it was, say, on your typical rifle hunt? Yeah, absolutely. The number one thing for an archer, once you're in the field, once you're in the mountain, the, the number one thing you need to always have in your favor or work to put your put your body in position is wind. Wind is the number one killer of archery hunters um when you're rifle hunting you might be able to see a bull 300 400 yards across the mountain and the wind where that bull is at may be different from the wind from where you're at so the bull could be calm the bull the cow the mule deer could be calm at a couple hundred yards away and there's no there's no real danger of your scent getting over there while you get set up for a shot. Whereas archery, you have to have you have to have yourself in a lot closer position. For myself, my first mule deer I shot was at 42 yards. That was the very first mule deer I ever shot with the bow. To this day, that's the longest shot I've ever made on an animal was 42 yards. The longest shot I've ever killed an elk at is 28 yards. For me to get within 60 yards of a big game animal. I need that wind to work in my favor. The one thing I've learned about hunting elk is the three things that they rely on are their nose, their eyes, and their hearing. If an elk hears you coming through the hills, the game is still on. Elk are big animals, and they make lots of noise as they go through the forest. If they hear you, they don't know that you're not an elk. They just know that they heard something. If they see you, and you're wearing good camouflage, and you're broken up pretty good, Unless you do some kind of radical movement and they just didn't get to watch you for a while, but they just see you, sometimes they're just not sure. And they'll hang out. They'll stay until they know for certain either you're danger and they leave or you're not danger and they get calm again and they go back to feeding or doing whatever they were doing to begin with. So they rely on their ears and their eyes. They saw you. And then their nose. The nose is the killer. If an elk smells me, it's game over. It's done. So, yeah, the wind is critical. I can't stress that enough to archery hunters. You must get that wind in your favor because if, an, if a big game animal smells you, it's game over. You're, you may as well sit down, take out some water, take a drink of water, and go find a different part of the mountain to hunt and try to get that wind in your favor. Okay. Okay, well, well knowing that, what are your your main tactics? You You had mentioned – hunting bedding areas and things like that so are you are you mainly spot and stalk or are you going to potentially set water and trails and those kinds of things or, or what, are, what are the main tactics that you're going to use as an archery hunter so yes all of, all of the above um they all work i'm not i'm kind of an impatient guy i've never been real good about sitting in a blind or sitting in water although it's extremely effective and i've i've known archers that have had amazing success 
for this particular hunt, this this hunt that's coming up, I'm I'm stepping in there pre-rut. What I mean by that is the bulls are barely, barely beginning to rut the cows. I was up there two nights ago, and um, the bugling action was nonstop. It was just as the sun started to creep down, the bulls got really, really vocal. For me, I was able to watch probably 25 head of cows that had not quite a handful of smaller bulls. And the bulls were bugling. They were very, very vocal, but they just weren't leaving the cows, which is fine. I didn't need them to come off. I, I wasn't hunting just yet. I was just taking a look. I saw two bigger bulls that were by themselves, which told me the rut's still not happening. Once the rut kicks off, those younger bulls won't won't be able to hold on to those cows. The big boys move in, and they take the harems. That's when it gets game on. Um, and my, my hope is, with this hunt that I'm leaving on today, that I'm going to get there for the next five, six days during that period. So for my my strategy, when when you asked the question earlier, and I said, yes, all of the above, sometimes sitting water is great, especially in drought years. Right now we've had great water up there. There's water everywhere. The grass is tall and green, and there's an abundance of water everywhere. So I don't see that being real beneficial to me, so I won't sit water. Hopefully if the elk are pretty vocal, I think that, Eventually, I'm going to get something to answer my dirty calls, and, and my hope is that they would be coming. Tree stands work. I know some guys here in New Mexico that have had success with tree stands, and I know tree stand hunting is is pretty awesome because you get a view from above the forest floor. Uh, my approach for this hunt is run and gun. I'm going to do a lot of spot and stalk. I spend a lot of time behind my, my binoculars, and I don't get call happy. I let the elk basically dictate what's going on i listen to see where their the calls may be coming from for elk hunters that are going out right now if you're not hearing elk that's where you got to be mobile be willing to move even if you have to move camp because right now the elk are being pretty vocal even if the bulls are not coming into calls they're bugling quite a bit so that's my plan that's my strategy for what i'm fixing to step into for the next five or six days but uh excited absolutely excited well that's that's awesome let's say that everything works in your favor you make a good shot what steps do you take after the shot how how long are you waiting before you go and look for that animal so from from past experience with a few animals i've actually had complete pass-throughs where i've watched the bucks or the elk kind of go off and I've been able to keep eyes on them and I've watched them uh, expire. In those cases, I'm able to, you know, sit down uh, and uh, kind of take it all in. I, it's, it's a very emotional experience for myself. Um, I, I like to sit down and, and take a moment to thank Jesus Christ for, for blessing me with that opportunity on the mountain. Uh, there's been other times that, uh, I have watched the animal go off and it gets out of sight. And um, at those times I sit down and, and I start replaying stuff in my mind. Uh, I always take note of the time that I possibly put the arrow in the animal. If an elk runs off or a deer runs off, I would say a good judge, a, a good a good time to just sit down. And this is one of the hardest things for a bow hunter to do is sit down for an hour. Give that animal an hour. I'll sit down and, and I'll try to have a snack. I'll drink. 
if you're a long ways from camp, it's important not to over-consume water before you've got to your animal. You want to make sure that you have enough water because, you know, breaking down the animal and then packing the animal out, you're going to need water to get you back. So uh, just be mindful. I like to be mindful of of my situation, my water, uh, snacks, my energy. Go to the spot that you 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 made the shot. Um, I don't go looking in the direction the animal ran off to. I go right to where I shot to see if I can find my arrow. Uh, generally find your arrow and you can you can tell with, you know, the blood that's on it, you know, what type of shot you got. I use tape. I use fluorescent tape and I tape off in the forest. You know, I'll tape off where I found my first blood. If I have a great big blood trail, I generally won't tape every couple feet, but if I have less blood, I tr- you know, I, I try to tape Every few 20 feet, you know, if, if, if it's that far, which in the past I have had a, a hunt where I had to tape every 20 feet, every 25 feet or so. And you want to make sure if you have somebody with you that you guys aren't crossing over each other, stepping on possible blood trail. And hopefully things work out where you can, you can find that animal within distance. I have shot a couple elk where I've made really good shots and they still ran a considerable distance. Uh, you know, James, like I said earlier, one of the hardest things for an archer to do is to sit down and let time go by. Go ahead and give them an hour. And that way the tracking isn't, there's not added efforts to it. You just go find it. That's, that's good advice. So we've kind of walked through from picking a bow through hunting situations to finding an animal. So we've kind of walked through the whole process but before we, we close, obviously you have a lot of experience in the information center talking to customers on a daily basis. So what are the most common questions that you've gotten from customers about either bow hunting or, or bow hunts in New Mexico? I think uh, one of the more common questions that we get from bow hunters and elk hunters in general is, where can I draw that's going to put me in the best position to shoot an elk? A lot of those people are pursuing big bulls because of social media and magazines these days. They really promote the size of antlers, and uh, and that's all great. That that truly is great, but I think it kind of takes away from the experience of hunting elk on public land. And when you'll step into the to the venture of public land elk hunting especially for new archers, I would tell them, don't get caught up in the numbers game. Don't worry about hunting big 300-inch, 350-inch, 6x6 bulls. Enjoy the experience. And um, for those individuals that are pursuing those elk, New Mexico has phenomenal elk hunting statewide, from northern New Mexico to north-central New Mexico to southwestern New Mexico up against the Arizona border and the Gila. Uh, we have excellent elk hunting in the Lincoln but at the end of the day, all of our elk hunts are so sought, sought after that it's it's gotten difficult to draw a tag. I tell hunters all the time, uh, you get three choices in the draw. For your first choice, put down that one hunt you just you daydream about. If you d- daydream about hunting in the Gila, pick that second season archery hunt in the Gila as your first choice. And as a second and third choice, you know, take a look at our draw odds reports. Take a look at the harvest data. And combine them and find a find a unit that maybe has less it's it's not quite as difficult to draw 
and still has a good opportunity of harvesting an elk and put those types of units down as second and third choice hunts. We've talked a lot about elk, but what about other species? So I guess let me phrase this question in two ways. What, for a new bow hunter, do you think the easiest hunt to get into would be? And for those more experienced hunters that are listening, what would you recommend as a new challenge? Uh, for new for new archery hunters, I would say probably if you could find a nice units, decent units with September September archery hunts. A lot of times the deer, you know, they're kind of in their summer summer routine, so they're not as spooked. The big bucks will still be boogered up. The big bucks they don't get they don't grow big being dumb. But for a new archery hunter, I would say try to find yourself a nice September mule deer hunt. And I think that would be a really good hunt where a person could have a good opportunity of seeing deer and getting themselves in position to, to arrow a nice buck. Um, antelope hunts are a blast. The nice thing about antelope hunts is you see nonstop animals and it's fun. It keeps, it keeps it fun. So if you could find an area and draw a good antelope hunt, I would say that that is the, the thing about antelope hunting is it's, amazingly frustrating it's so much fun they're like it's almost like spring turkey hunting it's they let you know that they're there and they'll even show themselves they just don't do it within archery range but it that's the challenge right i mean that's the whole idea that we go out hunting we go out and we challenge ourselves i think antelope pronghorn would be a pretty good hunt for a person to to try it's it's going to be a lot of fun it's still going to be difficult to arrow a buck but as far as seeing animals and keeping it fun, that would be one of them. I saw the question once, and it said, what is the easiest and what is the most difficult? The easiest, my answer to the easiest is the animal I just arrowed. And the most difficult, I would answer, is the animal that I'm fixing to step foot after. Uh, because you have to train your mind that it's it's always a challenge. Nothing's guaranteed. There's two animals that I think that are you're you're at a different level if you can arrow. I know uh, about three years ago you harvested a trophy cow's deer, and for experienced archers, I would say our cow's deer hunt down in southern New Mexico is an absolute challenge, whether you hunt them in September or January. And the number one thing, and and I don't mean just New Mexico, I'm saying probably nationwide. Archery hunting ibex in the Florida mountains. I think that's the pinnacle of archery achievements. I think for those individuals that have been successful in harvesting a, an ibex, I think they have done the the undoable. That is on my bucket list. That is that is something I do daydream of. But uh, for those individuals that really want to challenge themselves. Start looking at New Mexico cows hunts and cows deer hunts and uh, New Mexico archery ibex. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, I guess my last question for you, is there any last-minute advice for a new bow hunter? Yeah. Get away from the roads. Get yourself some good uh, software in your smartphone. Load it and... Pin your vehicle, pin your camp. That way you can safely get back. Make sure you have a good battery and just get away from the road. So many people complain about not seeing elk or not seeing big game. 
but they're all hunting within a half a mile of of the roads. They're ATVs and they're side by sides and vehicles. Um, as you start to put more distance between yourself and roadways, you're going to start seeing more big game. And as you start to see the more big game, you're going to see your opportunities increase. Uh, I would tell that individual that might be listening and saying, hey, I think I'd like to try archery. Once you secure that archery tag and you get yourself some solid equipment, I touched on it earlier, and I would say get yourself in the very best physical condition. And when it comes time to go hunt, get away from the road. You'll start seeing more wildlife, and with more wildlife comes more opportunity. Oh, that's that's great advice. Great advice. Well, Larry, I think uh, I think that's about all we have time for today. Thanks for taking the time to to join us and tell us all about the basics of bow hunting and and bow hunting in New Mexico. Yeah, it absolutely is my pleasure. I uh, I could talk to to other bow hunters or future bow hunters just for hours upon hours about it. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, thank you all for tuning in and listening. Be sure and check out all our other podcasts and sign up for the New Mexico Wildlife Monthly e-newsletters. And then get outside, start bow hunting, and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities that the state has to offer. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.